Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops that hovers around a given theme. They happen once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the October 2015 draft was abductions, and the draftees were Barbara Cox from the Works in Progress workshop, Gemma Webster from Novel, Kiwana Sigalis, Intermediate Short Story, and Shelby Kinney Lang, Advanced Short Story. Hey, you guys, I'm Andrea Dupree. I'm the program director here at Lighthouse. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So tonight is, I don't know, our like 30th draft or something? Or do you know? 23. It feels like 30. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I I feel like it's good. Um, And basically what the draft is, is we ask instructors every session to conscript in a nonviolent way. Uh, Students from their classes to get up and represent and read to this. uh, You guys are the best audience in all of America. Um, What better way to debut as a reader of, of creative work, which can be really nerve-wracking, but hopefully this ends up being the most positive experience one could hope for. Um, it always is, so don't, don't screw it up, you guys. <laughs> for tonight, we've got four readers. This is exciting. These four people are amazing. The first reader's instructor could not be here because of a spousal birthday which is the only excuse we ever (laughs) permit. Um, And it was Jenny Itell, who's like the one instructor at Lighthouse who I am qualified to stand in for for height and hair reasons. Um, And her person that she conscripted here is Shelby Kinney Lang, who I have met, and he's adorable. You guys are so lucky. Um, And here's what she wrote as way of introduction. I was drawn into Denver Ecclesiastes, the story Shelby's going to read from tonight, because of the fast pace, the strong voice, and the fact that I couldn't guess where it was going. It felt like a wonderful surprise from start to finish. It felt transcendent. In its final pages, it took me for a moment up and away from some of the crappy stuff that happens down here on earth. (laughs) Shelby was one of eight great writers who took the advanced short story workshop this last time around. It was a treat to get to facilitate the workshop and to be part of such an engaging discussion. Shelby's was a great voice to have in class. When discussing a story up for review, he was as likely to direct us to some aspect of Moby Dick, his favorite book, as to a Jimmy Fallon clip he'd recently seen. So he's no snoot. This is to say he's eclectic. He's an old soul who has an undergrad degree from UMass Amherst in English and philosophy and a master's from Oxford in English and American studies. But he's also young and has his finger on the pulse of what's happening now. And all this is reflected wonderfully in his writing. I know you'll enjoy it. Mr. Shelby Kinney Lang. 
Thank you for that introduction. Can you hear me? Just look annoyed if you can't hear me. Okay, so uh, I guess there's only one thing I want to say, like, by way of introducing the story. Is, um, I was a swimmer for a long time, and swimmers are, like, terrible people. Um, like, for the most part, my experience is, like, they're super, like, misogynistic and, like, racist and just really, really awful people. Um, so I wanted to, like, put someone who, who wasn't, yeah, who wasn't, like, uh, who wasn't a swimmer into a swim team and, like, I guess see what happens. Um, Yeah, so this is the story. Uh, Denver Ecclesiastes. In the middle school locker room, still dripping with chlorine, Jeremiah, David Levy's teammates, who, like everyone else, called him Jerry, batted at his butt with chamois and a foam pole until his legs were red and watery blood smeared down his inner thighs. He slumped out in tears to dry off publicly by the side of the pool with a thick threaded towel, awkwardly reaching under it as if it were a skirt with one hand to pull down his damp drag suit and climb one leg out in time into his Spider-Man-themed tidies and hope beyond hope the towel wouldn't slip and never had seen his Denver Nuggets and do who knows what's next. (laughs) In the cold and dark outside, his hair froze as his mother, Sarah, inched along the narrow highway from her newspaper job in Denver to pick him up. When she she saw his puffy eyes, she took him to ice cream. Mateo Ortega, who began the year like Jerry as an outcast on the muscular team, perhaps because he was a Mexican-American, made a surprising transition that practice into the them category, as in, it's us versus them, Mateo, and we'll never be one of them. In some really palpable and true ways, he was Jerry's first friend, a real pal to play video games with and iron out what was what in middle school re-girls and social standing and finding other friends. Coach Johnson and everyone noticed how Mateo had practically gone from drowning to one of the top five or so swimmers in a few months, all jeering about how Mexicans couldn't swim aside. The team held a practice relay that night to determine if Mateo would be on the A or B team and subsequently his relative coolness. The excitement and sadness of something lost for good welled up in Jerry when he thought back on it. Come on, you don't think I'll, like, abandon you or whatever, Mateo said before slapping his thighs and jumping up and down at the deep end. Mateo got up on the block for his leg of the race. Actually, yes, that's exactly what terrifies me, Jerry replied to Mateo's butt. Jerry wasn't on a relay team. Coach had him swim only two events, both long distance and excruciating. Unbeknownst to him, Coach wanted his 25-minute, 500-yard freestyle shit show, more than half of it ping-ponging the lane lines on his back because he felt like he couldn't breathe so well, so the others could rest between the races. For the upcoming duel against John Walsh Middle School Welsh's, he fantasized breaking 20 minutes and getting a modicum of respect, and to do it in what would inevitably be a very tense meet with more spectators than nearly anything but regionals. The Welsh's had, last year, stolen the Spartan school symbol, a composite material shield decorated as if it were an ancient artifact, and defecated in its declivity, a multi-defecation surprise, then launched the floating effigy into the middle of the Spartan pool, where Jerry had been forced by the others to retrieve it, pulling it with one arm, flailing with the other, lugging the shit shield to safety. Spartan parents, spearheaded by his mother, demanded some type of apology or retribution from the Welshes, whose parents had more or less said, kids will be kids, get over it. Ever since, the Spartans were out for blood. Mateo anchored the practice race and beat out Jonathan Love by three-tenths of a second, and everyone cheered and crowded around him as he pulled himself up from the deep end, dripping and panting. When Jerry came in among the others to talk to him, to congratulate him, Mateo pretended not to notice, and really pretended not to notice when the others brought out their respective weapons for the hazing bullying that ensued after such a victorious day. Mateo walked away and skipped their Minecraft date a few days later. Jerry was a bad swimmer, but he had minor scoliosis, and the doctor said this or ballet, which, in retrospect, would have been a better choice. (laughs) The bullying bullying confused him, though. From whence this anger? Wherefore? He tried to be philosophical about it. 
to, to contextualize it in a broader societal phenomenon of violence begetting violence, ignorance breeding ignorance, the world slowly spinning. He knew for a fact some of the kids had fathers with PTSD, and some of the kids had mothers who drank heavily, and some of the kids seemed to be minor sociopaths. <clears throat> but when, when he was honest with himself, uh, he thought he should be chiding them, because they were really stupid, and how often did he make fun of them for that? for being dumb. Like, never? And here, here comes the Moby Dick reference. What other 12 or 13-year-old among them had explored the sublime depths of Moby Dick and pulled out the ribcage of existence? <clears throat> and like, so what if he hadn't started puberty? Except for Matteo, the whole lot of them could hardly think, let alone read. Sometimes he imagined he lived a reversal of that Chaucer tale. Instead of a little Christian boy whose throat was slit by menacing Jews, only to rise up in death and sing and sing, Jerry felt like he was a brainy Jewish boy surrounded by an ignorant array of Aryans, Christian Christian Gentiles beating their heads against the walls and waiting to jump him because of his minor difference. Not that their respective intelligence mattered too much to him, actually, after all. He'd be happy to talk dumb things if they just let him. At a swim parents get-together a few days after this December bullying, after Sarah learned all about Mateo's success in the days worse, she told the other kids that their respective kids, otherwise if they didn't have kids, they ought to like scoot it, creepos, but obviously only joking, hi Rhonda, really need to back down ASAP on the whole Jerry's a dweeb thing and all types of verbal abuse and behavior that such thought entails and whatnot. Jerry's such an angel, she told them, but standing and looking at these donut parents of donut children, the way they seemingly baked in ignorance and hatred in an overhead lighted room where the carpet had been recently deep cleaned due to some vomit or another, she knew what she couldn't say. She couldn't say she meant it literally, Jerry being an angel. Couldn't say who is half divine, but like, genetics are no big thing where divinity is concerned. It's a motherfucking trump card, a billion years of evolution packed into a double helix. Couldn't say she was pretty sure his wrath would be harsh for all those little dirtbags currently tossing their mean weight around, and all the folks in the room and their current weight-tossing parental skills that, if she had to guess, were really pretty awful considering the objective evidence in the swim team's bullying culture. Had they too soon forgot the memory of poor little Eddie? <clears throat> couldn't say here comes God's army and he shall not judge super great mean little tweeny nose pickers bent against the arc of history that all is vanity and clay bitches until boom her child makes it not so makes it whatever it shall be Jerry's no good angel dad was visiting earth in a routine checkup type security breach thing s divine op when oh whoa who's this mortal hot mama his words he had been around the world and across space and time but never arose of such immense supple grace yada 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 etc etc and he'll and he'll prove it and he took her to the moon the fucking moon which is where Jerry was banged out inside of the American flag, first on and then a few inches off the surface, rotating cylindrically in low ga- gravity, bang, bang, bang. The worst part, she remembered, was she asked him about contraception, but he was all, no, dumbhead, you can't get preggers in space, duh. <laughs> and, what, and what happened next? Oops, G2G, BRB, his words, and whoosh, she was alone and didn't hear a thing from this angel who she, thinking about it later, hadn't even uh, heard of in Temple or anything like that. Not a word. Then 24 months after, angel gestation, she guessed. Her stomach inflated, then labor, then trumpets, she swore she heard them. And Jerry slid out seamlessly, a premium dweeby from the very start. Communications graduate, 25-year-old single mother from Arvada, takes on the world with journalism job. Jerry didn't know about his dad, or he did in certain aspects of his reality. Just not this bullying reality. Not yet. Thank you. That was awesome. I'll talk stupid with y'all if you let me. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. The next person up is going is Kawana Sigales, 
who's going to be introduced by um, just one of those people who is as gifted a teacher as she is a writer and just a beautiful person, Polly Younger. Thanks, Andrea. Now I'm anti-swimmer, though. Boo, swimmers! <laughs> so I've had the good fortune to have Kiwana in the past two sessions of my intermediate short story class. She's originally from Louisiana, and she taught French and social studies in North Carolina for 14 years. But she fell in love with Colorado on a ski trip when she was in high school, and then two years ago she finally got to move here. And Kiwana is the most dedicated student. She drives from Breckenridge every week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let that set in. <laughs> so any of you take a class with me later, so you can't make it, think of Kiwana. <laughs> but she's also one of those people who's just so great to have because she's a beautiful writer with a beautiful voice, and she always has really great comments. She's very excited about everything. And as you'll see in her excerpt, or here in her excerpt from Saltwater, she does such a great job of transporting you to other places and other characters. Every time I read her writing, I fall in love with the beautiful language, but also the beautiful places and just how I wind up in these people's lives. And we have the theme tonight of abductions, and I feel like it, that theme works for her and those lives that we intend to live and the ones that we wind up living and the different ways that we can heal and find our ways forward. And so with that, Kiwan will read from Saltwater. Thanks so much for that introduction, Paula, and for being an awesome teacher. It is a real honor to be here to read with you guys tonight. Robert and I were married for less than a month when his favorite Uncle Woody decided on a whim to spend Labor Day weekend with us. We had just settled into our condo on Topsail Island when Woody called to say he was on his way. It was 6 a.m., and he told us to expect him that night. He drove 13 hours from Baton Rouge to North Carolina in one stretch in his silver Dodge Ram 1500. I had only met Woody once, six months earlier, when Robert and I still lived in a small apartment near the LSU campus. I was finishing up a master's degree and had grown restless in Baton Rouge. I was ready to marry Robert, but he wasn't sure. Graduation marked a crossroad, and while Robert and I had not discussed it in these terms, we knew we only had a few months to decide whether to part ways or to move forward together. Robert had never met his father, and his mother died when he was 14 years old. Her brother, Woody, was a father figure of sorts, and when Robert said he wanted to introduce us, I saw it as a positive sign for our future. Woody looked like a middle-aged version of Robert. Aside from his mullet and bulbous beer belly, they were almost identical. They were the same height, had the same build, really, the same eyes and chin. Their personalities were similar, too. Both men had an easy charm, an irreverent sense of humor, and knew how to have a good time. We hit it off instantly, and the night we met was a blur of merriment. We ate and drank and played cards until, we, until the wee hours of the morning. The more whiskey Woody drank, the more melancholy he became. By midnight, his mood was pitch black. He talked about being knocked around by a brutish drunk of a father, how he hadn't been able to protect Robert's mother from his filthy wandering hands, how she never recovered from the things that happened in that house after Woody left for the army, and how he never forgave himself for leaving her behind. She was only 14 years old, Woody said, rubbing his temples. Woody had been happy for the better part of 15 years when he was married to Donna, a busty Italian beauty with skin so dark she was sometimes mistaken for Creole. When Robert's mother killed herself with a single gunshot to the head, something in Woody snapped, 
and he started drinking like it was his job. Donna left the day after Woody plowed his pickup into the cement base of a Walmart sign. She took their 15-year-old son, Tony, with her and never returned. Tony begged his father to get sober, but by then, Woody was taking a morning drink like Donna took her morning coffee. The man I met 10 years later was racked with regret and bloated by alcohol and a sense of failure. Can't dwell in the past, Robert said and poured another round of shots. Woody rubbed his finger around the lip of his glass and said, ain't that the truth? I reached across the table and squeezed his hand. He looked up at me with stormy gray eyes that could have belonged to Robert and squeezed back. Robert and I moved to Topsail Island a few months after I met Woody. He had, he had vacationed there before his world fell apart and wanted me to see it. We spent spring break there and felt at home on the island. After I graduated, we loaded up a U-Haul and moved to the beach. Woody arrived at our condo around sunset when the sky was layered in peach and gray. I was shocked by the man I saw when he opened the door. When I opened the door, he had gained at least 30 pounds, mostly in his abdomen, since the, t since the last time I'd seen him. He was winded after climbing two flights of stairs that led to our door, and his face was heart attack red. I diverted my eyes from his midriff to the gift-wrapped box he carried. I peeled back the ivory paper, and I found a George Foreman grill. It was the summer of 1998, and every American with a television had seen infomercials praising its small size and convenience. I love it, I said, eager to try out the nonstick griddle plates. You deserve a truckload of them for putting up with this one, Woody said, nodding in Robert's direction. Robert embraced his uncle and led him to the balcony. Woody stood hypnotized by the warm air and rhythmic sound of the waves. His body seemed to relax as he looked at the ocean that stretched out before us like a dark pool. It's so peaceful here, he said. Robert and I agreed. I can't wait to get in the water. Robert stood next to me on the balcony while Woody settled into the guest room. The front door closed, and I assumed Woody was making a trip to his truck, but a few minutes later, he cut across the beach. His orb-like belly protruded as he headed for the water, leaving behind a trail of footprints and discarded clothing. By the time he reached the shore, he was as naked as a newborn. My God, what is he doing? Looks like he's going for a dip, Robert said. But why? Why not, Casey? Robert's tone spiked with irritation. He stared ahead with his back to me, and I suspected there was anger hidden just below the surface of my husband's composure, waiting to leap out and ambush me when I least expected it. So just pretend this is normal, I asked. Yeah, just roll with it. There was a weariness about Woody as he ambled into the water. After a few careful steps, it was up to his chest. Soon he was stretched out, looking up at the moon. In time, he floated, out farther, he floated out farther than Robert or I had ever ventured. He must have been 200 feet away from the shore. Don't you think he should come back? I was a good swimmer, and I knew how easy it was to drift out too far. He's a grown-ass man. <laughs> He's a grown-ass man, Casey. If he wants to go for a swim, who am I to stop him? But this is when the sharks like to feed, I said, feeling the first roots of, of panic take hold. I thought of sudden drop-offs, sharp objects, jellyfish, the undertow, while Woody bobbed up and down. I just wish he would come in some. I tended to see the worst in situations, always preparing for a crisis. I understood at an early age that anyone was just a few bad choices away from disaster. Strong people, good people, even innocent people got hurt, lost their minds, were sent to prison, developed diseases and addiction, and died. The first time I read about reincarnation, I thought how horrible it would be to have to keep on living over and over. I thought, 
I thought about how Woody had struggled to catch his breath earlier, and I knew he would need help to make it back to shore. I kept my eyes trained on him and made a conscious effort to breathe deeply. Each time he went under, I held my breath and didn't exhale until he came up. The longer Woody stayed down, the more, diffi- the more effort this required. I counted the seconds in my head, one one thousand, two one thousand. My lungs tightened against the burning pressure, pressure of carbon dioxide building in my chest, pushing with nowhere to go. When Woody's head didn't resurface after 16-1000, I opened my mouth and expelled a loud burst of air. What are you doing? Robert asked, irritated. He's been under too long. Robert's eyebrows shot up in surprise when he saw gentle waves where his uncle had been. It was as if the sea had swallowed him whole. Robert grabbed a couple of boogie boards that were leaning against the stuccoed wall and sprinted for the door. Woody's head popped up just as the door slammed. I see him, I yelled, but Robert was already bounding down the metal stairs that led to the beach. His footprints mixed with his uncle's as he ran past the clothing Woody had shed like snakeskin. Robert swam out to Woody with bold, confident strokes. He pushed a a boogie board toward his uncle, who draped himself over it like it had arrived just in time. Then the two men men floated together for what seemed like hours. While they floated, I imagined every possible scenario that might lead to their maiming or death. I was thinking about bloodthirsty sharks and rows of razor-sharp teeth when Woody's distinctive laugh wafted over the waves. He wasn't close enough for me to see his face, but I envisioned his ruddy cheekbones lifted in a smile. Woody emerged from the water, refreshed, spirits restored. He was still swollen like a puffer fish, but there was a lightness to his step. In that moment, I understood why he made the drive. He had carried all of his pain to the ocean and allowed the water to seep deep into his wounds, burning as it drew out impurities, cleansing like only salt could. He trusted the ocean and surrendered himself completely to it, hoping it would heal him, but knowing he might drown. I met Woody and Robert at the door with towels. Woody sat on a bar stool and looked at me with bloodshot eyes. I winked at him and said, The next time you go deep sea diving, remember your oxygen and goggles. Men like pretty asses, not smart ones, Woody said, never missing a beat. (laughs) I walked over to him and wrapped my arm around his damp shoulder. It was gritty with sand and he smelled like the sea. He tapped my my nose with a pruned fingertip and said, that's enough excitement for one night. Then he stumbled off to the guest room. Later that night, while Robert and I were in bed, I asked him what he and Woody talked about in the water. He said he wished he'd been a kinder man when it mattered, that he was tired. I told him he had to fight. He said he knew. The temperament of the ocean changed overnight as if it had been napping but now was wide awake. The sound of rolling waves entered the kitchen where bacon fried into crispy strips on the George Foreman grill. We ate breakfast on the balcony before migrating to the beach that was already busy with sunbathers. Children with with plastic buckets and shovels built sandcastles and dug trenches while surfers with sun-bleached hair rode churning waves to shore. Woody, slick with coconut-scented sunscreen, made a beeline for the water. Robert pulled me from my beach chair and we joined Woody in the ocean. Waves peaked and tumbled, crested and spilled before breaking into white foam around us. In the brightness of the morning, it was like last night hadn't happened. Lines of happiness fanned out around around Woody's eyes as we frolicked on the beach that day. It was as if the sunshine had evaporated the sadness he deposited the previous night. Later, I imagined he would talk about his weekend with the guys at work. He would tell them about the day spent on the beach, about the hot bodies and cold beer, He would laugh, belly bouncing like Santa. Without a hint of despair, he felt buoyed by the waves under the bone white white moon. Thank you.
Beautiful. Thank you. Is that true about men preferring beautiful asses to smart asses? Okay. Just check. So the next instructor who is going to be introducing Barbara Cox is a multi-talented writer, Dana Award winner for her own fiction, and a beautiful musician as well, um, Miss Rebecca Berg. Thanks, Andrea. One of the perks of teaching at Lighthouse is that you get to hear amazing stories from people whose paths you might otherwise never cross. Or even if your paths did cross in the grocery store, say, your pasts might not cross. You'd never realize the breadth of this person's experience. You'd never encounter their dry irony and sense of the absurd. By the way, those are the qualities that will be on display in the excerpt Barbara will be reading tonight from her novel in progress, The Breaker of Lamps, which tells the story of a Syrian refugee in this country. Also, if it weren't from Lighthouse, you might also have no idea that while you were hearing about the Vietnam War on the news at the age of 12, the person standing next to you was actually on the border of Laos experiencing the refugee crisis caused by the bombing of that country. Barbara's interests as a writer have been profoundly influenced by that experience. I had Laotian friends, she told me, when I asked about why she writes about refugees. Just ordinary people, not political, who wanted the bad dream to go away. If it weren't for Lighthouse, I wouldn't know a lot of other things about Barbara. She doesn't wear her accomplishments on her sleeve. In fact, she has asked me to go easy talking about her bio. I think it's telling that she is most proud of the work she did organizing the UK tour of an Afro-Brazilian dance group from San Francisco. I'll just mention a few other bits from the bio. She was born in New Zealand and has traveled far and wide, has worked in Bolivia and Brussels as a journalist. Oh, and she has a master's in creative writing from the University of East Anglia in the UK, which is kind of like saying Iowa in this country, and a PhD in Latin American literature from Cambridge University. Ever since that experience on the Laotian border, she's been interested in people who have been picked up from one culture and dumped in another, people whose aspirations have been upended. There is the conflagration and catastrophe of war, she told me, but that kind of gross trauma isn't what she writes about. This is one of the things that I love about Barbara's work. We hear so much about the dramatic, visible horrors of war, the limbs lost, the rapes, the people burned or crushed by bombs that it's easy to lose sight of the quieter losses. It's easy to forget that they're real. A refugee who escapes life and limb intact to a relatively safe haven, the refugee who has enough to eat, we may be tempted to think of that person as lucky. That, I have learned from Barbara's work, is a failure of imagination. It's also a failure of compassion, one that hurts us, all of us, no matter what our life story. One of the things I love most about Barbara's work is, the comp- is that is the compassion it extends to people suffering in their minds and to people, above all, who have been prevented from realizing their full potential. There's a tremendous ambition in this, the ambition to capture the real pain of a quiet tragedy, the tragedy of thwarted aspirations, of a life lifted out of context and reduced. It's a pain everyone experiences to some degree, and perhaps for that reason is a kind of pain that it's tempting to discount or sweep under the rug. Even the arts struggle to find a vocabulary for this kind of tragedy, and our public discourse seems to have none at all for it. 
We gravitate to the concrete out of shame, out of embarrassment, out of fear of seeming to whine. We have enough to eat, don't we? But no, a life not lived to its fullest potential is a tragedy. That's what Barbara's writing has taught me. Without further ado, I give you Barbara Cox, reading from The Breaker of Laps. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. It is true that I have done creative writing degrees on the other side of the Atlantic and been at writers' workshops in London and here and there, but I've yet to come across someone like Rebecca Berg. And I just... Come on. Thank you, Rebecca. You don't know what you've done for me. You and Lighthouse have been a lifeline. Thank you. I'm now going to read from my novel, The Breaker of Lamps, an excerpt. Refugees are not ghosts, the pastor says. Their bodies ache, the burden they bear on their shoulders drags their feet through the dirt. And he, for one is prepared to travel far to help them, his journey inspired by faith, as well as a trace of Lebanese Syrian blood. Pastor Grieg is an imposing, white-haired, God-fearing man. He never knew his maternal grandfather, great-grandfather, who sailed from Beirut to Brazil in the 1860s, or even his grandfather who came to the United States. And, of course, his congregants haven't heard that saga either. Looking down at them now, he's glad he's kept his origins to himself. Along the South Loop, there are plenty who don't know where they came from. Fact mingles easily with fiction in this inventive part of the world. It's not where you're from, but where you're going that matters. And so among them, his olive complexion is attributed to his health. As pastor, he has it in mind to show the Bible study group a PowerPoint presentation of a convoy of army trucks with sacks of wheat beneath the tarpaulins being unloaded by the brave and willing beacons of hope amid the squalor of the refugee camps. In the meantime, though, the word which has failed him so often is all he has to cling to. The lesson he's chosen, he's not entirely certain why, is based on the book of Esther, the story of the beautiful, intelligent woman born into the misery of captivity, has always intrigued him. This rags-to-riches tale is also a tale of desire, a homily, not to adultery or wife-swapping, but to the power of sex, the power of renewal, of reinvigoration that he knows full well is that of women to give. And so he loves this book not least the ending and feasting and celebration, which always uplifts the spirits of the faithful. 
It is, in so many ways, a tale of the American dream, and if he gets his sermon right, the congregation will be falling at his feet, arms outstretched in supplication and rapture, to do whatever they can to help him on the road ahead. Once they understand his mission and why he is called to do the good Lord's work in a barren, inhospitable place, they'll clean out their summer and winter closets, donate used clothing, bedding, and even kitchen utensils, offer prayers or work as volunteers at the upcoming bake sale fundraiser to speed him on his appointed way. He's already confided in one or two of the flock, a couple of army boys, ex-infantry, seated before him now in the half-empty second row. They're on board, these kids, for sure, they've told him, offering to accompany him as bodyguards at their own expense. Despite their seemingly fresh-faced, clean-cut appearances, they have seen horror beyond what words have the power to express. If such words even exist, they are still locked inside. How many did you kill? What did it feel like? Their friends at home want to know. No way you can tell them that for 15 months or more, your loaded gun hung uselessly at your side, and all you can think of day and night is her, the beautiful young Iraqi woman who blew herself to pieces, leaving behind a bloody head in the dust at your feet. They stood there, armed and watching, hanging about as they usually did. That's what war was for them, mostly just hanging about. She'd taken out an Iraqi general, and the Iraqis had plastered her picture all over town. They wanted to shame her and her family, but in accordance with US policy, her photo was taken down. That was the curse they'd been landed with. Neither of them could get her image out of their heads. Both of them are being treated for PTSD, but the treatment's a joke, useless. Their nightmares persist, sweating, screaming, body parts thrashing about in their beds. Their lovely wives have had enough. They're threatening to leave and take the kids. So why not get on with the job? To hell with it all. They're more than ready to flex their muscles again. And so let us pray for healing and forgiveness, the pastor intones. Then to everyone's surprise, he adds, and now let us pray for Rami from Syria, who is here with us today. Yes, here in our midst. Rami shifts in his seat. His back is aching. Above all, he wants to rotate his spine, which he's just found out is suffering from years of neglect. Misalignment, pronation, the need to strengthen the core, restore flexibility, invest in orthotics, new mattress, new pillows, somewhere to sleep, not the floor. See a physical therapist, a chiropractor who charges more than any lawyer. All this is new to him. 
there comes a blast of noise from above. Rami looks up startled at the towering grey organ pipes. What happens now, he wonders, as the congregation stands and turns towards the aisle. The cross is held high. The priest in his white robes passes before him, along with the incense burner swinging as if guiding the lost to paradise. Then they leave the church, and he follows the stocking-covered legs ahead of him, shuffling along as if he's one of the flock, along a corridor with barred windows, the worn brown carpet at his feet, every so often splattered with dots of golden light. The parish hall is crowded, and smells of mothballs and stickiness, rancid icing on cake that has lain around for too long. He's hungry. He wants to be fed by one of the elderly, gabardine-clad women hovering around the trestle table that dominates the room. There are times when mothering is more important than sex to him. He's beginning to warm to one of the grey-haired ones, an old girl who turns to look at him, holding up a paper plate. The cake is about to slip. Only the filling is keeping it in place. He sends her a shy little smile and a nod. Luckily, he's wearing a dark suit and tie, although it's hardly what you'd call his Sunday best. It happened to be the suit he had hired for graduation and then taken back to the rental place, squished inside a black plastic bag. The trousers needed pressing and the jacket was still stained. Someone had vomited on it before the big event. The smell still lingered, even though he'd had it cleaned. He apologised profusely for the smell, but it was not his fault, he said. The clerk had listened sympathetically. I see what you mean, he said, taking the jacket from the bag and spreading it on the counter. He then put his hand to his mouth, as if he was about to be sick. We can't take this back, he said. In the end, Rami got a suit for the price of his deposit. Anything to get the wretched, evil, vomitous thing out of the shop. He takes a cautious step forward. The soldiers he'd noticed in the church are at one end of the trestle table. It strikes him as odd that they're kitted up, not in dress uniform, but in camouflage gear and laced-up military boots. He's about to stride across the room, slap them on the back, draw them into a huddle, suggest they go hang in a bar somewhere, when he sees the cake sliding from the plate and falling on the floor. The grey-haired old girl seems confused. He wants to reach out and comfort her. He wants to tell her, there's always more cake and not to worry. There's always paper towel or napkins or even the handkerchief from a jacket pocket. Ready to clean up the mess. Thank you.
That was amazing, Barbara. Thank you. I feel like if Barbara could read all my work, it would improve by a degree of magnitude. That was beautiful. And something she said reminded me, um, how many of you have taken workshops at Lighthouse? A lot of you. Um, we have this annual thing called the, the Beacon Award for Teaching Excellence. And what she was saying about Rebecca, because I'm the program director, I work a lot with the um, instructor-student kind of, I'm the conduit in some ways. And I hear a lot from people who have taken workshops all over the country and all over the world who say, we have a world-class faculty here. And, uh, right. The Beacon Award is one attempt to acknowledge that. Um, And so if you are somebody who has worked with an instructor who has changed your writing life for the better, I encourage you to nominate them. Um, They get not only the fame of winning the obelisk, which also doubles as a (laughs) self-defense blunt object. Uh, It also comes with a financial reward, um, which is actually a segue to our next instructor, who is this year's winner and who we will be celebrating in December. You may have heard about her in the New York Times recently. Um, She won one of the Amtrak fellowships. Apparently, like, 16,000 writers applied. 24 got the, um, got the nod to do these writing residencies on the Amtrak train. She also has a story forthcoming in One Story magazine, which is the white whale of short story <laughs> magazines, uh, Miss Erica Krause. Thank you. And by the way, Paula was also a Beacon Award winner a few years ago. So um, I've had the pleasure of having Gemma in my class, I think, six or seven times since I first met her a couple years ago. And there are some things that I could tell you about her, like she was an Italian major and a dance minor at CU, and she worked for 10 years at a nonprofit um, children's museum. But I think there are two main things that are really important to know about Gemma. And the first is that she can and has, in front of an audience, done a crow dance on roller skates. And if you get her a few drinks, she'll do it again, apparently. And the second thing is, um, once I asked her, uh, I I tend to ask my, um, she's in the book project, and I tend to ask book project people really difficult questions as partly to get to know them and partly to haze them. And, um, and I, I asked her, what do you know that few others know? And Gemma's answer was, listening is powerful. Let's just take a moment to think about that. <laughs> Gemma listens acutely and then surprises everybody with work and ideas that are startlingly original. Her writing is clean, beautiful, and honest. She doesn't look away from the hard subjects, and she renders them faithfully without sentiment or melodrama, despite my influence. (laughs) You gotta try. Um, 
Gemma spent years searching for her subject, and I believe she has found it in the novel she'll be reading from tonight, which is which was originally a short story that she wrote for Workshop, and it was called Lena the Liar. Um, the story turned into a novel uh, in progress called Taken Away, and Lena morphed into Telia. Did I say that right? Telia? Um, a girl who was essentially kidnapped into one of those um, for-profit boot camps for troubled teens. She fits right in the theme, right? Um, so this dystopian yet real-life setting shows us a world that is part cult and part cuckoo's nest, part something else entirely original of Gemma's own creation. So please join me in welcoming Gemma Webster to read for us tonight. Thanks, all. Erica says it's a good trick to get up here and say, I'm really nervous. And actually, I think it works. So there it is. So yes, this is from Taken Away, and this is the opening as it stands right now, which is a work in progress. So it's subject to change at any given moment. Okay. It came to pass that Master Cherry found a piece of wood that laughed and cried like a little child. From Pinocchio, The Tale of a Puppet. I was asleep when they came for me. A person with a tiny flashlight sifted through my dresser. Another drawer opened and closed. My dresser protested in the hands of the stranger. My night sight, souvenir of dark dreams, found the exits. Window. Door. I couldn't act, body and mind still wooden from my after-dinner pills. Light licked under my bedroom door. A pair of pacing shadows made it flicker. In the event of a fire, test the handle. If it's hot, you'll burn, said Grandmother's ghost. I'm made of wood. I, I don't want to burn, I silently replied. The lights overhead suddenly blazed. The stranger was a woman with bulldog shoulders and red corkscrewed hair. She wore a satin bomber jacket with a golden shield where her heart should be. She arrived quick and quiet at my bedside, and she pushed a stack of clothes into my chest. Get dressed, she said. The woman refused to turn away. My cheeks burned. I squirmed into my jeans beneath the covers. If I stayed in bed, it could be a dream. It's not a dream, said Grandmother's ghost. Time to get up. She tossed a pair of pink pearlescent flip-flops onto the floor beside my feet. They were new, still bound at the toes with a dangling tag. Outside my bedroom door stood a, a man, tall and wide. His arms hung down at his side, leaving just enough room for his round belly to poke through. He wore the same shield over his heart. Hands behind your back, he said. Are you the cops? Neither responded. The woman turned me toward her, away from the man. There were words inside the shield. Fox Family Transport Service. Sparrow wings scrabbled inside my wicker ribs. The man grabbed my hands and locked them behind me, the metal hard against my wrists. Where are you taking me? The man placed his hands on my shoulder. They were small, but looked like they could crush rocks into gravel. He wore a ring on his pinky. The golden letter CTR gleamed in the green enamel. If you don't settle down, I'm going to put you over my shoulder and carry you. Is that what you want me to do? I shook my head. The man hung a bag around my neck like a pack pony. It was the bag I used to take for weekend visits with my mother. Dust had grayed the zipper's black edge. I walked with them through the dark house. I saw the light under the door of my father's bedroom. My legs were lifeless, but were propelled by the determination of these others. 
Your father hired us to collect you. He wanted me to tell you that he loves you. This is his chance to start over while you get the help that you need. Your father has chosen not to say goodbye in person because he felt it would be too difficult for him. Daddy, I called out. The house and all its contents remained unmoved. Standing on the front doorstep, I felt felt the granules of snow against the sides of my feet, the square hard edges of it, but not the cold. The glassy cubes crushed between the cement and sandal. Icy stowaways lodged beneath my arch, between my toes. They did not melt. The man placed his hand on top of his his hand on top of my head and ducked me into the back seat. I'm cold, I lied. I wanted to see what would happen. The man opened my bag and pawed its contents. Something inside rattled like wooden dice. My pills. The man withdrew a gray sweatshirt. He pulled it over my head and bound arms. The sweatshirt was my father's. The green letters on the front were faded and once read Cabot College Golf. It smelled like shaving cream and cedar. Lean forward, he said. I didn't move. He pulled me forward by the collar of the shirt. The worn soft seams tore a little as he tied the arms behind my back. The man buckled my seatbelt. Anything else I can do for you? He doesn't want an answer, said Grandmother's ghost. I kept quiet. Behind him, the downstairs windows kindled in the morning dark. Standing in the living room window was my father. He stood with his arms crossed against his ribs. I couldn't see his face. He raised up a hand as if, as if swearing an oath. I turned away. The dash clock greened the inside of the car. It was just past four in the morning. If these two had come yesterday, they would not have found me home. The woman started the car. A recorded lecture picked up where it left off. There is no truth. There is only what works. The car pulled away from the house. Where are we going? Whispering Pines. It's like a boarding school in Montana. We're going to fix you, and then you can go home, the man said. My hometown was still asleep. The houses were dark. The stoplights flashed amber at each intersection. Castle Rock sat atop its butte, lit with a holiday star since the day after Black Friday. Our town's cheerful beacon would be lit until the stock shows auction unless the Broncos made the Super Bowl. (laughs) The highway was a taproot running at the base of the Rocky Mountains, delivering drivers and goods up from its southern tip in Las Cruces through Truth or Consequences and Colorado Springs to Denver. But we went the other way. We entered the highway at the outlet mall on-ramp. I would have worked an inventory shift at the end of winter break to earn money for my graduation trip. It was an easy one- or two-day job to reset the mall after the holiday rush. People needed their refurbished, flawed, name-brand goods at cut-rate prices to obey their president, buying things to support the war on terror. In my day, we planted vegetable gardens, said Grandmother's ghost. Dad bought a flat screen, I said. We passed the gated community where my father hoped to live. The cement retaining wall opposite was still wounded by the paint from father's car, not yet repaired from the night of my attempted escape. I had never driven before. It was harder than it looked. (laughs) I wanted to leave home, but this was not what I had in mind. We drove on. Denver's overnight lights twinkled in the pre-dawn dull. My mother was in there somewhere. The cash register building smirked over the city. When I was little, I thought my father worked there. It made sense that a cash register salesman would work in a building that looked like one. He didn't, and he didn't really sell cash registers. He sold systems of commerce. Everybody's got something to sell, was his motto. 
The sky lightened as we crossed the border into Wyoming. I had never been so far from home. In the morning twilight, relentless wind rocked the car. The dry prairie grass bent under the pressure. Father would be getting ready for work now. We stopped for gas in Chugwater, Wyoming, population 207, according to its sign. The woman opened my door and the wind swept grit into the car. It was as though grains of sand were hitching a ride to escape the bluffs of their birth. I was unbuckled, unshackled. Stand up, the woman said. I stood grateful to unfold, stretched out my arms into the sleeves of the sweatshirt. Oh, I stretched them out. That's the... (sighs) That's good, the woman said. Keep them up. She lassoed me with a long belt and tightened it around my chest. It's either this or the cuffs. We walked to the market. I reached for the door and the woman jerked me back. The woman opened the door. The heat of the place escaped, carrying smells of brown bananas, industrial chocolate, peppermints, salt. We walked through the aisles, past hot dogs desiccating on their endless rotation, and into the bathroom. The woman pushed me past the first stall and into the double stall at the end of the row. She locked the door behind us. You're going to watch me? Better get used to it, she said. Privacy is a privilege you haven't yet earned. The woman kept hold of my leash as I crouched over to conceal myself. Try to think of something else, said Grandmother's ghost. There is a house. It's large and gray, I said. It looms above the ninth hole, three stories above the ground. Your father's dream house, she said. The roof tiles are hand-cut slate, and the gutters, once rosy copper, are now verdigris. Inside, there is an elevator and polished marble floors. On the kitchen island, there are oversized garnets and emeralds spilled by a hand careless of its treasure. Those jewels are just glass, Grandmother said. All right, time's up, the woman said. We walked back through the little market to the counter where the man stood chatting with the gas station attendant. She and I were both average height, but she seemed smaller. She had mousy blonde hair and wore dark eyeliner. There was a coffee and a single-serve orange juice in front of the man. You'd be prettier without the raccoon eyes. Is that what you were going for, Andy? The attendant's eyes flicked up and then quickly back down to the counter. No, sir, she replied. I prefer a natural look. The man traded the woman coffee for the end of my leash. He shook the orange juice. Andy here is one of our graduates. We helped her get this job. Isn't that right, Andy? Yes, Mr. Fox, Andy answered without looking up. One side of her hair escaped her ear. It was dyed green. She tucked it back rabbit fast. Do you have any advice for our new student? Andy looked up from the counter. Clear cut your obstacles and mind the push. You'll get the help that you deserve. Her eyes were dark and long-lashed. I thought of Crystal, too, last year's stock show grand champion mule. The local news channel showed the auction live. Crystal's girl cried as she was sold to a Texas rancher. The girl's parents reminded her that she raised Crystal, too, to be sold and bred. Crystal's girl was inconsolable. Sound advice, Andy. The man drank his juice all at once. He crushed the carton and placed it on the counter in front of Andy. We'll see you next time. I hope you'll take my advice about the makeup. Yes, Mr. Fox. Thank you, Gemma. That was amazing. And um, all four of the readers tonight, one more round of applause.
I think the best thing for any writer or reader or thinking type of person is to find others in your tribe who inspire you and maybe scare you a little. Um, you four, I would keep reading your stuff and you frighten me. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you all and hope to see you next week. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.